0: We come now to the conclusion of our series on 1 Samuel. We have followed the life of Samuel, the rule of Saul, the anointing of David, and now we come to the end of 1 Samuel, uh, the transition from the rule of Saul to what is covered in 2 Samuel, the reign of David. So we will read this morning 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 through 13. Would the Spirit of the Lord attend to the reading of his word? Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me down and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan, and they came to jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarish tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come to the end of a book, but not the end of the story. And pray that you would help fix our eyes on the truth of what your word, both in this passage and in totality, says about you, about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Would you, by your Spirit, attend to our time of reflection? Help me to speak your truth to your people for your glory. This I pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. When we're excited about something... We tend to anticipate it, to look forward to it, to anticipate its arrival. But anticipation is not necessarily the same as preparation. Uh, I, unlike some of you, but I have been looking forward to snow this season, to the beginning of the enjoyment of what snow brings, the beauty of it, uh, the time outside playing with the kids and the snow sports. So I have been anticipating the coming of winter and snow. And then we had the forecast this week, and it was a little dicey. Were we going to get snow? Where we going to get rain? Were we going to get snow that was going to be changed into rain? And so, in part, because I trusted the weatherman, remember, don't do that, uh, and because I had been spending so much time looking forward to the snow, I found that I wasn't prepared. I still don't know where my snow brush is to brush off my windshield. I went to put gas in the snowblower and had enough for about 10 minutes of snowblowing, and so yesterday I had to drive out my snowy driveway to get gas so that I could blow off my snowy driveway. I was excited about the coming. I was anticipating snow. I even knew what would come, but I was not prepared. And this morning, God's people are about to get a new king. They've been anticipating it for a while. Those that have known at least know that David has been anointed. And and as God's Word has been shared with God's people, those reading along in the story of what God is doing have been anticipating the coming of David. But for the reality of the new king to be experienced, the preparation or the removal of the old king must be accomplished. After 40 years of rule, Saul's reign comes to a tragic end. The preparation for the right kind of king, not a king like the nations, but a king after God's own heart, means the removal of the wrong kind. The good news of a better king, the good news of a better kingdom, the beginning of something good means the ending of something bad. It means judgment. It means consequence. And the painful work of undoing what is wrong. I think this passage by God's providence fits well for us this last week of Advent. Because Advent is about preparation for the return of Christ the King. And it is a glorious thing. It is a joyful thing. Christ is coming again to make all things new, right, righteous, good, and joyful. But in order for Him to come, when He comes, He will come with judgment. He will come with the tearing down of the powers and the wicked and the wealthy who look down on others just as Mary sang in the Magnificat when she reflected on His birth. And so as we anticipate the return of Christ, just as those reading along with 1 Samuel are anticipating the coming of the better king, of King David, we need to evaluate our preparation. If God is in 1 Samuel 31 preparing for the bringing of David through the removal of Saul, how are we supposed to follow along with what God is doing in being prepared for the new and better king? as our hope is that everything bad will one day come untrue, we need to ask, are we ready for that? This morning as we see what God does in the life and death of Saul, we are encouraged to prepare, I think, in three ways. There are other ways in Scripture, but I think three ways from this passage. First of all, to evaluate our trust. Are we believing in God? Repentance? And then mourning. This morning, we need to ask ourselves whether we are prepared for the return of Christ, whether we are even prepared for the celebration of his first coming at Christmas by asking ourselves, what are we trusting in? And the first thing we need to ask is, are we trusting in God's word and what he says? 1 Samuel 31 is an expression of the trustworthiness of God's word. Now, Saul reigned for almost 40 years. Saul was not a particularly good king, though he had some beginning good things about his rule, some defeats of the Philistines, some obedience. But for a long time, he had not been good. And we're in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. It's all the way back in 1 Samuel 15. When Saul refuses to kill the king of the Amalekites and takes for himself loot from among the sheep and the cattle, when Samuel declared that the kingdom would be removed and given into the hand of one of his neighbors, and that his sons would not continue the kingdom. As we have followed Saul throughout the book of 1 Samuel, he's acknowledged this reality in some ways. He acknowledges even when David spares his life in the cave, that one day David would be king, but his actions don't reflect that reality. His actions reflect that if he can remove David, he can remove the threat of what God has said. And so for the many years, perhaps even decades, since Samuel's prophetic declaration that the kingdom would be removed from his hand, Saul seems to have ignored the truthfulness until it comes to pass where he and his sons, who would be his heirs to the kingdom, are cut off, setting up the groundwork for David to be made king. But then there are the events before this passage, which happened the day before the passage. It's a few chapters before in 1 Samuel 28. But in 1 Samuel 28, what happens? He goes and he consults the medium of Endor. And Samuel says, the kingdom is going to be taken from your hands and given to your neighbor David. That's old news. But in verse 19 he says, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Samuel's word of judgment from years earlier in 1 Samuel 15, and the words that Samuel declared from beyond the grave to Saul the day before both come true in the events of 1 Samuel 31. The promised judgment comes. As we walk in our own lives, some of us ask the question, will judgment come? Will there really be a new and different king? Will the old system really be wiped away? And some of us ask those same questions differently. Because some of us, or at least those we know, they look around and they don't see fire from heaven. They don't see lightning striking the wicked. They they see the same old patterns and ask, really? Is God really going to bring judgment? Is he really going to punish the sinful? Is he really going to fix things? And so that can cause them to live as if this is the way it is and will always continue to be. Maybe with resignation, this is as good as it gets. Might as well get used to it. Others just living for themselves, saying this is all there is if there are no consequences. Others of us ask those questions tiredly, saying, Lord, how long? You've promised the return of Christ. You've promised the new kingdom. We desire it, but we struggle because it seems so far off. Is the Word of God trustworthy? 1 Samuel 31, as fulfillment of the Word of God through the prophet Samuel, both in chapter 15 and in chapter 28, confirms our call to trust the Word of God, that He is coming to make all things new, to judge the living and the dead, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. How do we know what to trust? So much on what we choose to trust, what words we trust, what what signs or what advertisements we read in the newspaper or hear on the radio that we choose to trust is based on the source. Is the source of that language, is that source of that promise trustworthy? And it doesn't matter how much we trust in the words, we can trust in the words with all of our heart, but what if the source of those words isn't trustworthy? We will be unlikely to trust in the warnings of judgment and the promises of a better kingdom if we are trusting things other than God. Israel had placed their trust in a king like the rest of the nations. And now, in the midst of 1 Samuel 31, they are suffering judgment that they deserve because they have trusted in Saul who himself had led them astray in disobeying God. We see the issue of trust and who Israel is trusting in and the parallels we see here between this passage and 1 Samuel 4. I know it's been months since we were in 1 Samuel 4, but that is when there is a great battle against the Philistines. And Israel suffers an initial defeat and they say, I know what we'll do. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant and we'll engage in this great battle. And what happens in the battle? Well, first of all, Eli, the one who was spiritually misleading God's people and allowing his sons to abuse the people of God, hears his sons have died and he falls dead. Same word to used to describe Saul falling upon his sword. And then what happens? The ark the object, without consulting God, the object that the people had put their faith in, a totem, a superstitious symbol to them, ended up in the temple of Dagon. Here Saul, the king, the king like the nations, who God's people wanted to trust in instead of God as their king, they looked to him to win the battle and likewise suffer a great defeat in his armor ends up in the temple of the gods. His head, 1 Chronicles 10, mentions in the temple of Dagon. God's people have put their faith in things other than the Lord, and those objects of faith, whether the person of Saul as a king like the nations, or the ark instead of God himself, end up captured until God intervenes. Israel now ends up divided, cut off in the middle by the Philistines who have taken over. And now they need a king who can truly defeat the Philistines. For all that had happened through Saul's life, they end up in basically the same place they were before they wanted a king. If we don't trust that God cares, we don't trust that God is more powerful, if we don't trust that God will act against injustice and sin, then we won't trust that Jesus is coming again. We won't heed the words of promised judgment or salvation, the proclamation that sin, death, and evil are no match for him, that he is the one that will have the power to defeat our sin, that he is the one that was able to defeat death. Not like Saul, not like the ark that could not defeat the Philistines. Where is our trust? What do we believe? Is this all that there is? Is this as good as it gets? Or is the God who makes us good, who wants our good, worthy of trust when he promises that he is coming to bring an end to all that is wrong and to make all things right? As we evaluate that trust, as we realize that there are things that we might be trusting in other than God, that leads us to our second response of preparation. If a new and better king is coming to replace the kingdom in which we now live, then one of our responses of preparation must be repentance. The tragedy of these events in 1 Samuel 31 is that they might have in part been avoided. While God has spoken his word of judgment in terms of the removal of the kingdom from Saul and the removal of a a kingly lineage from his sons, his death, his death in battle, the death of his sons was not proclaimed until the day before the battle when Saul consulted the medium. And if you go to 1 Chronicles and First and Second Chronicles cover the life of Saul and David and the subsequent kings, uh, often in more summary fashion and, and giving more evaluation. But if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, which describes these events in almost the exact same words, it says this of Saul. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. That's what we know about from 1 Samuel 15, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. 1 Chronicles 10 acknowledges that this death, this great defeat, is a result of Not only Saul's original sin back in 1 Samuel 15, but his pattern of ongoing sin from which he did not turn until it got to the point where he is willing to overtly break the clear commandment of God that was described in Scripture as deserving the death penalty. 1 Samuel 15 sets Saul on a trajectory. But despite his words that we see throughout 1 Samuel, he does not truly repent. He does not truly turn. He continues to pursue David in his jealousy. He inflicts horrendous violence against the priests at Nob. Saul has failed to repent. And so for the preparation of the new king must mean the death of Saul to remove him for his lack of repentance. If we trust that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead as the Apostles' Creed reflects the biblical testimony, then preparation for that is not only asking who we have been trusting, but the act of turning away, of repenting, from trusting anyone or anything other than God. To acknowledge sin and turn in humble reliance on God's promise of forgiveness. God's promise that we will pass through judgment that is coming because the penalty for our sins has already been taken care of in Christ. The frequent warnings of judgment that we see in Scripture, whether to an individual like Saul, whether to a nation like Israel in exile, or against the whole world on the day of the Lord, is not merely to proclaim that bad things are coming. When we we read the prophets, it's not just predictions of bad things that are coming. They are warnings that are meant to invite people to not experience those consequences coming. The necessary judgment on sin and transgression, but instead to turn and find mercy in God. They're invitations. That is why Jonah didn't want to preach in Nineveh. If he was going to just proclaim judgment and condemnation on Nineveh, Jonah would have been there. He hated the Ninevites. He didn't go to prophesy about the coming judgment against Nineveh because he knew that God in His grace would receive their repentance and be merciful to them. And he didn't want that. When Jesus came and lived and taught before His death and resurrection, He spoke consistently more so than we want to be comfortable with, of judgment, of hell and the last things. Because Jesus is vengeful? Because Jesus takes delight in those things? Because he was declaring that all the bad things were coming to an end, but to continue in sin without repentance was to share in that end. If all bad things must come to an end, then if we are aligned with those bad things and our lack of faith in our sinfulness, in our choice of earthly ways and a rejection of Jesus, then we will share that end. His coming was so that we did not have to forever slide down the slippery slope of sin into the torment of hell, but so that we could take his extended hand And in repentance and faith, we could instead share in the kingdom of God that he promised. Repentance. Be it the initial repentance of turning from our own ways to faith in Jesus Christ, or whether the ongoing act of turning from sins to the forgiveness that we long for each week is meant to define all of us in preparation for the return of Christ. Luther described the whole of Christian life as repentance not because he wanted us to beat ourselves up. No, he knew what that was like when he was a Roman Catholic monk and he was continually beating himself up both figuratively and literally for his sins. No, he said that the Christian life is one of consistent repentance because he knew that we are constantly pulled into the old ways of life to being content with what we have now, to aligning ourselves with the not-so-good things that will eventually come to an end instead of the better things, the promise of Jesus and His salvation and His kingdom. Repentance disconnects us from the bad which will perish so that we can in turn share in the good that is coming. We prepare for the new kingdom through our trust in the right person through our repentance of sin and lastly, through mourning or through lament. The new king is coming. The old king is gone. That's what 1 Samuel 31 is about. It is exciting. It is good news. But the tone of 1 Samuel 31 is not exaltation. The passage of Scripture here does not rejoice in the death of Saul the tone here is somber the tone here is tragic the picture we have here is a complete defeat a total rout of the army of God's people in Israel Israel's army is on the run so overwhelmed are they by the numbers and the power of the Philistines and so as they are running from the front lines the archers are able to catch up with them in their retreat Saul falls prey, mortally wounded by an arrow, and he knows that they're losing so profoundly that the soldiers who are coming behind the archers will catch up with them shortly. He knows that he is as good as dead, and he asks the armor bearer to kill him because he knows that not only will they eventually kill him if his wounds don't kill him first, but he knows the horrible mistreatment that the Philistines are known for. It's not just the cutting off of heads and displaying of bodies. I won't go into the gruesome details, but the Philistines were known for the gruesome things that they did to the living bodies of their enemies. And so he gives his armor bearer this horrendous request to put him out of his misery a horrible choice and he's fearful and most likely likely he is fearful of raising his hand against the Lord's anointed and killing the king. And so Saul makes the horrible choice. He falls on his sword. His servant then takes his life and then there's a subsequent humiliation of his body that we read of. What's the response? Are we supposed to read this and dance and rejoice? Are we supposed to see, see what happens to Saul and say that's what he gets? I think the response we're supposed to have is more truthfully reflected in what we see in the end of the passage. When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, who had a walled city, and perhaps that's why they're not one of the towns that flees amidst the onslaught, they undertake this difficult task of recovering Saul's body. And this was no light thing. It says they marched through the night. It would have been about a 10-mile march. They would have had to cross the River Jordan and then have to encounter whatever potential Philistine resistance there was. Why? Maybe you remember this name of this town because they showed up in the beginning of Saul's reign. The first thing that is recorded in 1 Samuel after Saul is anointed and appointed as king is the call of those in Jabesh-Gilead to be delivered from the hand of Nahash. Remember the serpent? Who was accosting them and saying, I'm going I'm to destroy you. And they said, no, we'll, we'll make a covenant with you. And he said, fine, here are the terms of the covenant. You will serve me, and I will cut out the eye of all your men. And the Lord appointed and used Saul to deliver them not only from the conquest of Nahash, but from the humiliation and the degradation that he had promised against them. They remembered Saul, who had delivered them from humiliation and tragedy. And so they go and they get his body, and they burn his bones, not because that's how you're supposed to handle a body, but to prevent further degradation of the body. Buried his bones, and then they lamented for seven days. But not just Jabesh, Gilead, those that remember the old Saul, the warrior Saul, the defender Saul, but David. We won't be going into 2 Samuel, but if you were to turn to 2 Samuel 1, when news gets to David, he doesn't throw a party. He writes a song of lament. He fasts and weeps for not only Jonathan but for the whole household of Saul. Mourning and lament do not ignore the guilt of sin. The mourning over Saul is not to excuse his rebellion against God, to ignore his transgression, but mourning also takes into account not only the guilt of sin, but the corruption, the destruction, and the consequences of sin. Even as we may be looking for the return of Christ, as we are longing for the peace and the eternal life He brings, that does not call us to rejoice in the coming judgment and the destruction of the wicked. Because while God exalts injustice, and in His wrath against evil, Ezekiel 33.11 reminds us Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God sends his prophets to call to repentance because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. The call for repentance is because God does not delight in destroying the wicked. And we see the heart of God in the word of God made flesh when Jesus wept over the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for he knew the destruction coming to them. You've heard that old expression, don't cry over spilled milk. And I might not cry over spilled milk, even if it might be a nuisance to clean up, but I I might cry over an expensive wine, or a nice whiskey that has been spilled or to see a home destroyed or the marring of a Rembrandt masterpiece because while well, milk not, might not be worth the grief that which is valuable is to mourn is to acknowledge both the value of something and the cost of its loss to be giddy at the destruction of unbelievers, to forget that we are first and foremost the same from them apart from God's intervening grace, and also to forget that they are image bearers whose loss in judgment is a horrible tragedy. We don't know the eternal state of Saul. Scripture doesn't comment on it in any direct way that I would go to the bank with. But the testimony of Scripture is not that I should delight that Saul suffered, but that I should mourn over his sin and the results of his sin and watch over myself and those around me in light of that. We are right to mourn and let our mourning over sin and its consequences send us out in mercy to be used of God to rescue all those that he would call to himself sometimes during this time of year as we get ready for Christmas, as we anticipate the celebrations, some of us may feel guilty because we don't feel that happy. Because we are aware that for all of the gifts and the trees and the singing, that there are still painful realities for ourselves and for others. You know, the truth is, most Advent songs, they're sad because they acknowledge that we are still awaiting the return. That the world is still under the curse. We are still in the broken world. People still suffer around us. To mourn over loss, to mourn over those whose Christmases are not merry and bright and full of toys, is not to be a spoil sport, It's not to be a Debbie Downer, but to see that there is so much bad that needs to come to an end. That we need the return of the King that we need Christ's kingdom because this kingdom, this world, even its best to offer is not enough. What we desire is not more of faithless kings of this world, but the faithful King Jesus who promised he is coming to wipe away every tear and forever exile every enemy from the kingdom. Sorrow, pain, addiction, vengeance, hunger, abuse, and sin. Christmas is a week away. Some of us are ready. Probably most of us are not. Whether it's the decorating of a tree, the baking of good treats, the purchasing and wrapping of presents. Some of us are ready and some of us aren't. But you know what? I can't guarantee that Christmas 2022 will come. I can't guarantee that that in seven days we will be celebrating Christmas. But I can guarantee that just as God promised that there would be judgment on Saul and there would be provision of a new king, that just as surely as he ended the reign of Saul to establish the reign of David, just as much as I can guarantee that Jesus, the king born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of God's word, came to draw us from sin to life, to make all things right, I can say he is coming again that whether Christmas 22 comes or not, Jesus is coming again. So if you're prepared for Christmas, great. And if not, that's okay. But I hope you're prepared for the return of the King. Let's pray. Lord God, we look for that day. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might know your reign. We know that until that day, We must mourn over the brokenness of this world. We must turn from our sin. We must invite others to trust, not in what this world offers, but in Jesus. That's hard, that's difficult, that's scary work. But we don't want to be prepared for more kings like Saul. We want to be prepared for the king who gave his life for his people. In Jesus' name, amen.